welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for July 2018. I am writer Hyphen, hoping my old tweets don't come back to haunt me, Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is... Hello, I'm writer Hyphen, film critic Hyphen, covered in pastry crumbs right now, Rochelle Semenovich. It is true, listener. I, uh, I can see it. It's uh, an absolute disgrace. Need to touch up the lippy. Thank God this isn't filmed. Well, um, a quick bit of housekeeping before we get started. Uh, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, if you're a listener who will be in Melbourne on August 11th, you might want to come along to the Melbourne International Film Festival and uh, see Hell is for Hyphen. It's live in concert, although we won't be singing. Um, we are coming up on episode number 100, and to celebrate, we're doing a live show at MIFF uh, with special guest Greg McLean. We'll be talking about the films of Ridley Scott. It's going to be a fun show. You do have to book tickets through the MIF website, but they are free. So if you're in Melbourne, come along. It is a Saturday afternoon, the 11th. Yeah, it's of it's perfect. August. Yes. What else are you going to do on a Saturday Nothing. afternoon? Nothing. But back on this episode, we are going to be joined by our special guest Corey Chen a bit later in the show. But before we are, Rochelle, what have we seen this month? Uh, the big film this month for me was Mary Shelley, the story of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, played by Elle Fanning, who was the author of the gothic novel Frankenstein and the wife of romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, played by Douglas Booth. The film follows their tempestuous relationship living as outsiders when they run away from polite society, taking Mary's half-sister Claire, played by Belle Powley, with them. During one wet summer, they stay at the house of louche poet Lord Byron, Tom Sturridge, where a challenge is set for each of them to write a ghost story. Frankenstein is born, but who will claim authorship? Lee, did Mary Shelley electrify you, or is it a dead thing walking? Oh, good question. Uh, I was a corpse until I saw this film, and now I'm walking around like a, like a man, uh, <laughs> searching for God. Um, I... Uh, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Haifa Al-Mansour uh, and her film Wajda, which was mm. the first film to be shot entirely in Saudi Arabia. I, th I think it's, it's just a perfect, beautiful, funny film. And I'm so, I've been so keen to see what she did next. Mm. There's something that does not quite scan about this film, mm -hmm. and I can't put my finger on what it is, which is frustrating because that's kind of my job, is, to, <laughs> is yeah. to work out what works, not just whether it works or not. It's flawed... I still really enjoyed it because there's something really compelling about the world that she drops us into. Even when the drama doesn't quite land, I was interested in it, even though I don't think it worked. Yeah, the same for me. I keep thinking about this film and it's really, well, it sent me to Wikipedia to look up all the uh, historical characters for one thing. Mm. They just were such amazing people such iconoclasts rebels you know out of their time ahead yeah. of their time romantic crazy tragic most of them were dead by the time they were 30 mm. um so the world itself and, and the events it's based on are just really worthy of of um making a film about but yeah there's something missing in a lot of the the dramatic scenes it feels like it feels like they ended on a I don't know, on an off note, they're, they're mm. clumsily staged. The dialogue's kind of wooden. It's written by um, Emma Jensen. This is her first um, screenplay. And, you know, it's Haifa Al-Mansur's first English-language feature. Mm. So it's it's kind of a newcomer's film. But at the same time, it makes some interesting choices, don't yeah. you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was going to say it's not boring, but I know many people have found it boring. It's It's... 
it never phones it in. It's not your standard biopic where it's just like, here are the events of this person's life told in order, which is a trap that a lot of biopics fall into. Hmm. And it's not that. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I really want to identify what isn't working about it because all the elements are kind of there. I, I like the casting. I like Elle Fanning. She's great. She, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's arguing that she's not great in this role. And it's a really inspiring story of a yeah. very um, unconventional young woman. I mean, she wrote Frankenstein before she was 20. Oh, God, okay, And, yeah. uh, um, you know, but I think... As, no, someone, as someone once said on Twitter... Uh, Mary Shelley, uh, the woman who couldn't be bothered sleeping with Byron, so she invented science fiction, <laughs> which is the best description of her. Ever. Oh, look! Another thing that's really interesting about this film is the way it deals with um, non-monogamy mm. and the way the the male characters Byron and, and Shelley sort of um, sleep around, and that cost this has on the female characters. But there's also this really weird unresolved plot element with. The um, her half sister yeah. who lives with um, with Shelley and and Mary and like what's are they are they having it off or aren't they you think they are but it's never going to go there and yeah I think it's it's just got some really interesting ideas in it yeah film. and I think that maybe there are some things that history has not confirmed mm. and so there's a way of hinting at it mm. the way that history sort of hints at it without I thought it did that really well yeah actually. same. Well, onto the documentary RBG. She's your first, last, and only line of defence against the worst scum of the universe. So don't fear her, cheer her. If you ever get near her, don't jeer her. She's fearless. RBG's freezing up all the flack. What's that stand for? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RBG takes us through the life, career, and history-changing battles of one of the first women to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. We get insights from her family, from the people who've known her all of her life, from colleagues, opponents, clients. It's a brief but rich look at the world of this iconoclastic figure. Rochelle, let me ask you this in closing. Did you feel that RBG seemed imposing? Yeah, well, she's she's an impressive lady and I did find her inspiring and interesting and if one of the, you know, whole points of an autobiographical, you know, documentary is to let us know what the person's like, I think this film does take us into her mind. There's mm. a lot of RBG talking to camera, maybe a little bit too much. The filmmakers here, Betsy West and Julie Cohen, have a um, background in TV documentary and this mm. is kind of quite a no-frills approach yeah. to the subject. And if you look at the trailer for this film, it looks a lot more exciting and visually sort of interesting mm. than the actual film itself. But the subject, you know, she was so important in the, um, you know, she was the co-founder of the American Civil Liberty Union Women's Rights Project and she fought so many major gender discrimination cases in the Supreme Court in the 70s. As a historical documentary, it's, you know, it's really good stuff. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, it, it is quite straightforward, but I loved it because I find Ginsburg so interesting and her life is so fascinating that, you know, this could have gone for three or four hours and you still wouldn't have been bored. I do like the way they frame her biography in a way through some of the key cases she presided yeah. over. I think it's a really clever conceit and I think it worked really well to keep the momentum going after you've sort of hit a point where you're like, oh, so then she just lives the rest of her life and is still important, but all the sort of the, the pegs that you would use are behind her. The, she mm. fought for this, she did that. 
and there's something inherently less dramatic about and then she's nominated to the court and presides over cases, mm. even if they're, they're important cases, even if she changes the course of you know, Western democracy finding that peg from like looking at her through the lens of the people whose lives were going to be affected forever gives it a bit more drama and I think that was a really good approach yeah yeah and another thing I mean looking at her early life it's just extraordinary the path that she took and how hard she works it looks like she doesn't really sleep very much yeah um you know she had a baby and a husband having radiation um treatment for cancer and she was studying you know law and she she's just extraordinary inspiring she mm. is kind of a superhero woman but another thing that's just really beautiful about this film is the portrait it paints of a really um supportive functional partnership yeah. with her husband um they've got Marty. such a beautiful love story it's, yeah. It's great. yeah and he was really behind her he really supported her put mm. her forward you know stayed at home to look after the kids and cook because she's apparently a terrible cook <laughs> and um yeah i just love these stories i mean later on we talk about um you know nora efron and her partnership with nick peleggi yeah. and then you know the film julia and julia you know julia childs and her partnership with her husband and i think you know it's just so unique to find stories of marriages that where people have a professional working relationship that's really functional and yeah. loving absolutely and this is just a minor quibble i, I don't give star ratings and if but if i did uh, there would be an extra star if they'd included. Of all the pop culture references to RBG, they left out my favourite one from Futurama. He attended a law school so prestigious the basketball team was coached by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just could have got that clip in there somewhere. But otherwise, you know, I, I really enjoyed this film. It's a little hagiographic, you yeah. know, a bit reverential. I, yeah. I think the filmmakers were just totally in awe of Ginsburg. Sure. But why not? Yeah. Uh, our next film is completely different. It's The Breaker Upperers, um, New Zealand female buddy comedy from writers, directors and co-stars Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek. They star as best friends who run a suburban Auckland business where they're hired to break up relationships without one partner realising what's happening. This involves a lot of dressing up, lying, pretending to be police officers and mock kidnappings. But when one of them becomes romantically involved with a dumb, young, incredibly cute client, played by boys James Rolleston, it rocks their friendship. Lee, was this a film you'd like to date or break up with? Oh, I will uh, never break up with this film. I, uh, <laughs> I loved it. I'm, as an Australian, I am offended that all the best comedies are coming out of New Zealand. I know. What's I'm, with that? That's something we'll just have to deal with on, in our own time. Um <laughs> Yeah, this is so good. It's so funny. There was one line in particular that destroyed me. Now I, know, now I want to know what. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's when she's giving direction to, uh, to what's-his-name going down on her. And it's uh, that. And just the way she gives direction in just that really straightforward New Zealand style. Yeah. Like, just the, the way Kiwis are just so... It's very you know, candid, isn't it? It's so funny. It's rude and um, sweet. And uh, and yeah, it's look, it's it's a great concept. It's, it's a little lo-fi. I mm. feel like they could have done a little more with it, like in the in the third act, just up the stakes a bit, mm. give it a bigger scale. But you know what? It's a comedy that's funny, and we get so few of those that I'm I'm totally on board. 
Yeah, it's um, Taika Waititi is the executive producer, of mm. course, and um, he's worked with Sammy and Van Beek on Eagle versus Shark and what yeah. we do in the shadows, and it's kind of got that that sensibility to it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that that whole museum. I mean, there are a lot of like. There's a lot of strong comedy voices in New Zealand. I love that they're, you know, in addition to Watiti producing, there are cameos from Jermaine from Flight of the Concords and Oscar Kitely from Naked Samoans. And there's this really strong... And I actually didn't pick that it was... uh, What's his name from Boy? Oh, James Rolston. It didn't occur to me that he would have grown up. I know. He's a big lad now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm uh, not sure. I'm glad I didn't know that watching it because now I'm feeling quite uncomfortable. But... um, yeah, no, this is a, this is a fantastic film. I really they they they've got a really strong voice. They're very funny performers, uh, very sort of self-effacing, and uh, in all the ways, all the best ways for you know a good comic performance. It's yeah, it's really good. Yeah, not every gag works, and not yeah. every scene's polished. It's kind of a bit rough around the edges and that kind of thing. But it's just it's. It's lovely to see a romance um, <laughs> where, you know, female friendship is centre stage and it's funny and yeah. it's, it's, um, it's quite daring in places too. Mm, absolutely. Well, now to the last film we'll be looking at and uh, The Devil and Father Amorth. We all fell in love with The Devil in uh, William Friedkin's The Exorcist and now the wacky prankster is back and he's brought a few new friends with him. Confirmed Hell is for Hyphenates listener William Friedkin is following up on the themes from the biggest film in his career, but this time as a documentary. Friedkin follows Rome's official exorcist, Father Gabriel Amorth, as he conducts an exorcism on a supposedly possessed woman. We watch the exorcism in one continuous take, talk to some neurologists and priests about what really went on, and then we reach a rather extraordinary ending that I don't think we should talk about just yet. Rochelle, did this film possess you, or does your mother... uh, Actually, never mind. Did it possess you? Oh, look, I've been sort of um, battling with myself about whether to confess this. I I tried to watch it on Netflix, and it froze... I, I paused it... And I'd got 20 minutes through and it was terrible and I hated it and I paused it and then I tried to restart it again and I tried three times but it kept taking me back to the beginning and I couldn't watch the first 20 minutes Sounds again. like the work of Satan to um, Yeah, the devil was in my TV and I only got 20 minutes in and, oh, God, it was just... Oh, I have a resistance to this sort of, like religious claptrap. The architecture and power of the Roman Catholic Church is just kind of unquestionable. I've, I thought Friedkin's approach here was interesting when he was talking about the history of the exorcist and, mm. you know, he goes back to the places where it was filmed and talks about the steps and, you know, all yeah. that kind of thing. And that part of it was sort of interesting, but yeah, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, it's it's very basic. Yeah. I was I was keen to see what you thought of it given your uh, upbringing. Um, yeah. Religious upbringing. But, um... he's, he's not very... Um, Skeptical. I think he no. has an investment in yeah. the devil really possessing this woman. There is and a lot of confirmation bias in this yeah. film. There is, uh, yeah, he does make an attempt to ask challenging questions, but they're all, even the neurologists seem sympathetic to the concept. And I wonder, like, how much vetting went into these people? Did you seek out neurologists who might be quite Catholic. religious and Catholic? <laughs> even the Jewish doctor, um, well, I assume he's Jewish, he's Israeli. Yeah, the baseline premise to this whole endeavour seems to be, well, we know God and the devil exist, but did Satan possess this one specific woman? I'm like, hang on, I don't agree with the premise of this whole thing. So, you've, you know, it's, it's, 
it's really hard to watch if you have even a a sliver of skepticism about you. I'd, and I'd really, really like to talk. Did you get up to the exorcism? You must have twenty minutes in. I uh, yeah, yeah. I would really like to talk to a sound engineer about this film mm. because, to my years, there is some very suspicious post production treatment really? on the possessed woman. Ooh. There is some doubling up of voices, a little like what happened in the Exorcist. Controversial. Yeah, I'm not convinced. I'm, I'm not convinced that they did not tinker in, and like the way the sound drops down from the others. Yeah. Uh, from the priest when she talks and in that double that double up echo voice. I'm not yeah, I think there's something very sus going on there. So there is, so you wouldn't have got to the final sequence. No, I'm I'm kind of wanting to but if I could have fast forwarded to the final sequence, I really would have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um it's a real shame that uh Friedkin when he was meeting this possessed woman in what was clearly gonna be the, the, the big finale of the film, it's a shame that he uh forgot to turn his camera on for that final sequence where all the amazing supernatural things happen in the church with the spinning around on the floor and and uh, and all this extraordinary going on yeah luckily he remembered and described mm. it to us in detail I'd, over I, some dramatic music i feel a little bit disappointed in friedkin yeah i'm a little <laughs> disappointed too. i mean god if the most amazing supernatural thing happened and that was the moment you forgot oh. to turn your camera on. We all have our moments, we though, do. don't we? we where we do. forget to turn the recorder on. Uh, <laughs> look, this is... I think the most interesting thing about this is the fact that it's Friedkin returning to his classic stomping ground. Mm. I'm glad it's on Netflix instead of in cinemas. I think at most it's it should be a DVD extra on The Exorcist that you could watch or probably not watch, not watch. Um, it, it's it's an addendum to that it's uh, only just an hour and a little bit longer yeah an hour nine I and think. it still feels long yeah there's not a lot to it and yeah a little little disappointed in that and it's a shame because you know as we talked about in the Friedkin episode a few months ago um, he really got his mojo back his last few fiction Killer films Joe. Killer Joe yeah he's he's been making some good films recently so um, maybe just documentary isn't the right place for him mm. but uh yeah i'd watch another killer joe <laughs> we all grew up with this thing that my mother said to us over and over and over and over again which was everything is copy you know you'd come home with some thing that you thought was the tragedy of your life someone hadn't asked you to dance or you're the hem had fallen out of your dress or whatever you thought was the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And my mother would say everything is copy. I now believe that what my mother meant is this. When you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But when you tell people you slipped on a banana peel, it's your laugh. So you become the hero rather than the victim of the joke. I think that's what she meant. On the other hand, she may merely have meant everything is copy. That's Nora Ephron, as quoted in Jacob Bernstein's 2015 documentary about his mother, Everything is Copy. Because we've spent this month steeped in the works of Ephron, this concept has been at the forefront of our minds. And because we're on a bender of having directors on the show and asking them about directing, we thought this would be the perfect opportunity for the two ideas to collide. 
So who better to ask than the actor award-nominated director behind the short film Reg Makes Contact, as well as episodes of Sisters and Mustangs FC, and most notably the hit SBS series Homecoming Queens, Corrie Chen. Welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates. Thank you for having me. Do you believe everything is copy, Corrie? It's interesting because I... You know, I've heard that quote before from her and it's taken me a really long time to truly understand what she meant, like the the emotional resonance behind that line about, I guess, mining your own life for storytelling. I, for me personally, I, I really do believe it. You know, I remember when I first got to VCA, one of the things that kept pushing was um, write what you know. And there's a lot of pros and cons to it. But that was sort of the first time where I looked at the narrative of my life as a 20-something and kind of gone, oh, is this the first act or is this the second act? Or am I, or have I already reached the climax and this is going to be, you know, flatlining for, for the rest of it? And the filmmakers I truly admire and think about are always ones that utilizes the key emotional memories and aspects of their lived reality in their own work because I I mean I would argue that Spielberg does it in you know in E.T. and Mm -hmm. everything a lot of that is about his own family breakdown and I absolutely believe everything is copy and use it wisely yeah yeah how does that? I was reading you talked about uh, wanting to be an astronaut. Yes. And then <laughs> go, hit a point at which you realized, oh no, I don't want to go into space. I want to make movies about going into space. How much is something like that? Like, you know, do you want to jump into a Star Wars film, make an insanely enjoyable space fantasy? Or do you actually want to capture that feeling? of you as a young girl wanting to be an astronaut? Like how? And, and are those two different concepts? Or is everything driven by that? autobiography oh yeah (laughs) my every time I think about being an astronaut like something my heart still flutters going oh god that dream that I never got to um got to achieve yeah I I wanted to be an astronaut for ages and it was my dad that was like oh you know women can't be astronauts but then happily gave me a video camera and went, go ahead, go be, go be a director. That's cool. I think it's the, what I perceive as the emotion and the adventure of being an astronaut, which I would have gotten from, from movies. And I think from my own personal life, because, you know, my parents just upped and left Taiwan to pursue their dream of being Australians. They've always been really obsessed with this land down under. Like in the 80s, they had a restaurant called Koala in Taiwan, which was an Australian-themed restaurant. And they hadn't been before. What it was, was the cuisine? Oh, they, they sent them bankrupt. But let me tell you, <laughs> it was like toasted ham and cheese sandwiches. And um, all the staff wore um, like cork hats sure. and there were inflatable kangaroos and stuff everywhere. But yeah, to them, it was a, a place they'd never been before and it was just a vision of this um, foreign land. And I think there's something in the aspirational spirit of that that made me go, ah, oh, I want to go into space. Mm, <laughs> um, but like creating that world, which is... it's essentially what filmmaking is you're always constantly creating different worlds 
But what's universal behind it is that that feeling, which is really the connective tissue. Mm. Mm. It's interesting what you say about even um, filmmakers like Spielberg bring an autobiographical element to their films. But I think this idea of using your own life as copy is particularly sort of associated with women. And, you know, it's the same as a writer and a memoir writer. You know, people try and make this into a female thing that women only can write about themselves and their lives. Do you think that's maybe um, something that comes up? Yeah, and I, you know, I, and I was thinking that and um, I couldn't figure out if it was stereotyping women by saying that women do that mm. or my resistance to agreeing with that is... Or, um, it is me thinking that, oh, because women write about, in air quotes, softer stories, like I'm buying into this patriarchal notion. Like, largely speaking, I think the female filmmakers that have, like the career female filmmakers do tend to use their own stories to um, explore whatever it is that they want to explore. And I personally am always... I, I have a pull to that in my own work mm. as well in whatever it is. I'm working on two features at the moment. One of them is a rom-com and that is absolutely driven by um, uh, breakups that me and my co-writer went through at the same time. So I think it really depends on the genre. In something like the rom-com genre, when it's about human intimacy and pain, it has to come from a truthful place. And anything that isn't authentic like that, like people can pick it immediately mm. and it just doesn't resonate. How do you translate that though? Because so many people assume that when they're writing something, they think this was interesting when it happened to me. This was funny when I said it. This was really heartbreaking. And therefore, if I just depict it like that, it will, the audience will feel that and, and we get so much bad art out of, out of not being able to translate the experience that happened to us into into that. So how do you, I mean, is, is there some sort of shortcut or some sort of key that you have to saying, to translating that feeling to the audience? Yeah, I think um, when you're first starting, you know, the first couple of drafts, a lot of it is a little bit like therapy. When I write, I like co-writing because it's in that conversation with each other. You can see how it's being received. You can see how, if it becomes self-indulgent or if it is just a therapy session on paper. But I have always subscribed to the theory that in storytelling, specificity is the universal connective tissue. So the more specific you can be about a certain experience, like the details when you know, for example, like when you are dumped or when someone does leave you, like what was playing on the radio in that exact moment or that you can hear the hum of the fridge, you know, it's just those little things that makes a viewer go, oh, yes, I am that person. I'm not just watching this experience. I'm feeling it again mm. or, for, or for the first time. Yeah. And I think that's where co-writing is, yeah, really important. And it's interesting because Nora Ephron is always spoken about as a really great collaborator. You know, with all mm. her projects, she works 
very closely with you know the director or she speaks to a lot of interviews a lot of people on their experiences as well mm. so you know it's it's about mining not just your own life but stealing from others <laughs> mm. and as a filmmaker who was born in Taiwan and grew up in Australia I suppose that sort of cultural heritage, migrant experience, mm. um, yeah, identity issues around that has really played into your short filmmaking work, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, my first VCA short after being told that, you know, write what you know, was about an uh, immigrant couple moving from Sydney to Melbourne by car. And that was a real thing that my parents and I did. And my first draft, I was actually in the film as like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid sort of observing <laughs> the strains the cultural dichotomy was having on our family. But um, I couldn't make it work. I couldn't be an observer in that film because dramatically I was so unnecessary. Like as I was writing, I'm like, I just, I don't care about what this kid thinks. I, I just want to be in that key central conflict between the, the husband and wife. So that was quite... Or, um, like, I was quite offended at myself that I was cutting myself out of the story. That's so, that's so yeah. interesting. Like, it it with, took a while to realize that the script wasn't working because I was in it. But it's not just mining your own life. It's knowing when the literal mining of your own life is irrelevant to the story yeah. and having the, the knowledge to take that out. That's, yeah. yeah, and the only way to show what it felt like was for me to not be in it. Um, wow. Yeah, but that was absolutely, you know, a, a, the the a, half the conversations in that film was directly, uh, you know, from my parents and um, as well as a mixture of a couple of other stories I'd heard them tell about their immigrant friends. Because um, in the film, the couple run over a wombat. Um, but I had heard my parents were telling me that one of their friends ran over an echidna and decided to take it with them to eat. <laughs> and, um, and they stopped at a highway motel and the echidna wasn't actually dead, but instead, because <laughs> they put it in the bathtub and it, it obviously was stunned, woke up and kind of thought, where am I? Panicked and suctioned itself to the bathtub and had its spikes up. So the um, Chinese couple went into the bathroom the next day and just found this like fully erect echidna <laughs> <laughs> suction to the base of the bathtub. And I did try to incorporate that aspect, but I just, I knew I couldn't shoot it um, properly. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, and that, that entire story was super interesting, but I apologize because the only takeaway I had are the words fully erect echidna. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, you I'm know, as I, as I said it, I made a mental note to put it in a script somewhere. <laughs> You know, name, name the film that. I think that, I'd like to see that on a marquee. Yeah, yeah. So, Corey, pretending we didn't just sort of mention it in the last segment, which filmmaker have you selected to talk about on Hills for Hyphenates? Uh, shockingly, Nora Ephron. Never heard of her. Yeah, <laughs> my, my pick for the week. Uh, so, when did you become a fan of Ephron? I would have to say precisely in 1992. Right. Actually, no, maybe 93. But um, I was still a kid in Taiwan, and I went and saw Sleepless in Seattle with my mum. And it's one of the first movies I remember seeing, like English-language movies. And, like, perhaps it 
is like it's that experience of one of the last movies I saw in Taiwan. So there's like a weird feeling of home attached to it. Hmm. But yeah, Sleepless in Seattle to me is a perfect movie, and it's really stayed in my consciousness ever since then. Hmm. Uh, and I, you know, went and tracked down. A lot of her films just throughout my career and life, and yeah, she's an amazing writer and an incredible director as well.、Mm. Yeah, I had the same、uh, thing of going along to see Sleepless in Seattle and going. I actually went on a school excursion. I remember the, I think the drama teacher was there going, "Oh, that was rubbish, wasn't it?"、Oh. I, was, I don't know how old I was. I would have、yeah. been like twelve, maybe going. Did you not get how good that was? Like,、yeah. oh, and even then, like without knowing the words of like structure, and then this paid off、mm. this, and like she kept them apart for this long, and like innately I knew that I'd watch something really clever. Yeah, and it and it bothered me that he hadn't recognised that. Yeah, because I could tell you know something interesting was going on. Yeah, and even that poster, like it's just so iconic、mm. with the, the yeah the, the day and night, and、yeah. it it just it sums up everything about that film. So yeah, Efron was super interesting before she became a a filmmaker. She was an intern in JFK's White House. She became a, a mail girl at Newsweek. And generally, when you start working in the mail room, you become a writer. But she was told women can't write for Newsweek, so she quit.、Uh, was part of a class action lawsuit against the magazine,、uh, and you know she became、uh, a really Successful New York writer. She satirized the New York Post, and as a result, was given a job there. She wrote for Cosmopolitan and Esquire, and then eventually, because she、uh, married Carl Bernstein,、uh, she wrote a draft of all the President's Men, and it didn't end up getting used, but it got her enough attention for her to write the TV movie Perfect Gentleman, and everything flowed from there. And she. Basically, became a screenwriter and then a director, and and you know that was the the genesis of Efron. Yeah, and it's interesting when she talks about why she became a director as well, because she was saying that,、um, you know, when directors read screenplays, they think about why they sh- and think about why they should do it. They always go, "How is this movie about me?" But when most directors,、um, men, especially in the eighties and nineties, when she was working. She just found it really difficult to find men who were interested in telling women's stories like that, and、um, that's when she was like, "Well, I'll just do it." Because then, and and the other thing she says is that when you're the director, the only person to blame is you, which、mm. is very, very accurate <laughs> and very painful, but satisfying at the same time to know that、um, you don't have to rely on anyone else to to execute the the vision.、Mm. Mm. And yet, probably her best-known work is when Harry Met Sally, which she wrote the screenplay for, but Rob Reiner directed it. And I think it's just such a great collaboration、mm. between the two of them. Like you know, watching interviews with both of them, it sounds like they really sparred off each other on giving the male and female perspective of those romantic comedy characters played by Billy Crystal and. Meg Ryan,、mm. and, yeah,、um, yeah, it's just such a great collaboration. Yeah, and that came from a conversation that they were having. I, I think they were pretty good friends, and they were trying to find a project to collaborate on. And、um, he was going through a divorce or a separation at the time, and talking about the pain of getting back into the dating game. And that was all. That was how it started.、Um, Yeah, and then I mean, he was like, "Oh, you should write this screenplay." And she went and、um, 
like interviewed all the people that worked at the production company and stuff to talk about what they thought of love and you know dating and sex and between men and women and collected it all and that's how the screenplay mm. happened i was surprised to find out that um those documentary interviews in the film were fake yeah. <laughs> They're not real. <laughs> I thought those cu- um those couples were real. They seem real. Yeah. Actually on, on this last viewing I was like, "Oh, these are fake cuz <laughs> some one of them isn't quite like it seems a yeah. little rehearsed, but um but yeah, I I thought they were real at first yeah. as well. Yeah. They're my favorite bit. Yeah. Well, not my favorite bit, but they just add to the yeah. yeah. They add to the structure of the story so well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And we we actually have talked about this film before because we've done the films of Rob Reiner oh yeah and it's interesting because it's very much a Rob Reiner film and it fits mm. into his canon but then coming at it from you know it's very much a Nora Ephron film and it completely fits with her canon as well and it's just you know a small note on how auteurism doesn't have to be exclusive I think yeah oh I mean I personally quite dislike the auteur theory I yeah. think it's ruined um how we talk about well, that's the premise of this entire show. I'm sorry, but like, but or, but it shouldn't just be on the one person. Yeah, because like yeah. screen, either film or TV, it's just so enormously collaborative. Yeah. And you know, I think it's it's strange that we don't talk about production designers more mm. as much as we talk about DOPs. Oh, I'm ready to do an entire episode on Patricia Van Branden Stein. Yeah, you know, yeah, she's an author, absolutely. Yeah, and like so much of the framing choices made, it's you know, it's because of like the, the standby props person, mm. and yeah, but anyway, that's yeah, just yeah. my beef. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Um, fair enough. But yeah, I, I absolutely uh, absolutely agree that. That film fits its pinnacle of you know both their careers, mm. and it it tonally it fits them so well. Well, um, yeah, we've been talking about her being such a great collaborator, and you know she obviously collaborated with her sister Delia a lot. She either as writer or producer, uh, so Delia worked with her a lot. She also worked a couple of times with um, Alice Arlen, and the two of them first worked together on her second screenplay, which was Silkwood which is the, the true story um, of the uh, the woman who uh, tried to blow the whistle on just really poor safety standards in a, in a nuclear facility. Um, and she was nominated for, for a screenwriting Oscar. They both were. And uh, not the most important part of this, but uh, that, that film starred Meryl Streep and Cher. And now I think we really missed a trick by not reviewing Mamma Mia 2 this month because <laughs> the synergy of that, it, it's once in a blue moon. Oh, my God, I didn't even realise you said Oh, it's a sequel to uh, yeah. Mamma Mia 2 is actually a sequel to Silkwood. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people know that. Uh, anyway, sorry, back on track. Um, and then after that, um, she wrote Heartburn, which is interesting for a few reasons. I guess mm. not to keep going on the synergy thing. Last month we did Alan J. Bakula, so we did all the President's Men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 so interesting doing two months in a row where we see Carl Bernstein in very different lights. <laughs> we see the professional, brilliant, bringing down a president, Carl Bernstein, and then the terrible husband, mm. philandering husband. Now, I find this so interesting because Nora Ephron knew who Deep Throat was before it was revealed. She knew it was Mark Felt. And she had no problem telling people that. She told everyone that. <laughs> but nobody believed her. Uh, apparently her sons were the only ones who believed her. Now, when Bernstein and Efron got divorced, part of their divorce settlement 
involved this film. And the director, Mike Nichols, actually ended up being a signatory to their divorce because it oh, was wow. so ingrained in that. Yeah. So she had to use pseudonyms. So what did she call Carl Bernstein? Mark Feldman. <laughs> and I think that is the greatest troll in cinematic yeah. history. <laughs> she revealed Deep Throat's identity in a film just lampooning yeah. her husband. I'm just, I'm so impressed with that. <laughs> Uh, I didn't um, pick that up. That's that's a pretty great um, anecdote, I think. And it's so her as well yeah. to um, get revenge in a clever, <laughs> clever way by using a pun, basically, yeah. um, through a name. But I have to say, I thought Heartfelt was it was a really hard watch for me. Like I just didn't think it was a very good film. Mm. Um, the book I loved, but it felt like in translating it all the the tragic comedy of what was in the book was taken away and I just thought the screenplay was um, so bitter mm. and so so angry. And, like, from the get-go, I was sort of thinking, I don't want you to be together. Yeah. Like, I, I don't like any of you. Yeah, um, they don't seem like a good match from no, the beginning. Maybe no. she got over that she was still in sort of, like, a yeah. bit of a romantic haze when she wrote the book because she wrote that mm. to get over the marriage breakup, yeah, um, which is certainly something I can relate to. Double Disillusion is still available from bookstores now. Um, <laughs> and, but, uh, yeah, so she wrote the book and that came out and then, like, Im- immediately on the heels of that wrote the screenplay. And yeah, it's interesting right. they have such different uh, yeah. Yeah, and Yeah, and I think, um, I, don't, I think it was in Heartburn or maybe one of the essays that uh, she wrote something like, um, everyone tells you, like, once you move on, you forget the pain. I never forget the pain. What I forget is love. And mm. I think in the film, she completely forgot what it felt like to have been in love, in love with him. But yeah, she certainly remembered a lot of the regret and bitterness. Yeah. So yeah, Heartburn, the film was very negative. Raw. Yeah, very <laughs> Too raw. raw. Yeah. I mean, then she goes on to, you know, she wrote a film, Cookie, in 89, and she writes When Harry Met Sally, which becomes a huge hit, and rightly so. And then she's got, you know, off the back of that, uh, she's got kind of the nous to become a director. And her first film is not widely known. Uh, this is my life with uh, Julie Kavner as, as a single mother who wants to be a stand-up comedian. She's raising two kids. She wants to hit it big. And there's a lot of, even though it's based on a book, you, there's a lot of her in there. You can really see a lot of that. So, I really loved that film. Yeah. I, I watched it um, in preparation for this, and it's just so, you know, it's, it, it is the work of a first-time director, I think, but there's a lot of funny lines in it, and it's got a really young um, Gabby Hoffman playing mm. one of the little oh. kids, yeah. and I think it might be her first screen role, but she's so yeah. magnetic and gorgeous and cute and um mm. Yeah, it's it's a really funny, fun, yeah. warm film, and I think that's another thing about Efron is that she's warm. Mm. Yeah, it's not just it's that mix of kind of like, and that's why her rom coms are so much better than all the ones that have come after. Pretty much, it's because it's not just you've got all that heartfelt stuff and mm. you know the very satisfying they fall in love, blah blah. But she's got a real edge to her humor that is just, and she balances the two so well. They don't they never feel in conflict. Yeah, her next film was Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. So I think what 
you know, the best of her films, what saves her work going into saccharine territory is that a lot of the time her protagonists start off as skeptics,、mm-hmm. like especially in Sleepless in Seattle, you've got Tom Hanks who believes in love but also believes that it will never happen again. Yeah. Like lightning doesn't strike twice, and Meg Ryan, who doesn't really believe in it and is just in a serviceable, fine relationship,、mm. and that she's quite happy to settle for. So, yeah. So be- because of that, the arc of yeah their character emotional journeys. It's not just two people going like love is great, love will solve everything. Let me go find it.、Mm. Um, And I think that skepticism is what makes them endearing and、mm. quite relatable,、yeah. and really sets the the romcom structure for I think years to come.、Yeah. But it's I think it's also reflective of the nineties, where the world was in a slightly more positive, <laughs> joyous, <laughs> le- less hateful place. I don't think、uh, they thought that at the time, but looking back, it certainly、yeah. seems like that. So I, innocent. <laughs> But yeah, I watched them.、Um, You've got mail last night, and、yeah. I just thought this film just doesn't work in today's world in in so many ways. Like other than the chat room and emailing, you know, that's not now. It's just swipe left, swipe right. But、yeah. even the bookstore stuff,、um, <laughs> we've kind of come full circle in that the little bookshops won, and they they beat the Borders equivalent. Which I yeah, I thought yeah. was quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the happy ending to that. Yeah, <laughs> we're saying this just around the corner is a giant skeleton where borders used to be.、Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so she she makes Sleepless in Seattle, and then she's got a run of、um, Mixed Nuts in '94, Michael in '96, then you've got Mail in '98, which is the big Tom Meg. Reunion, and by the way, May. I don't know if I'm going to cut this or not, but I used to read Mad Magazine when I was a kid. Like the cleverest thing, you know how they always had the um, uh, a so and so department. Yeah. Above, above their senseless in Seattle parody, it was called a Tom Meg bomb, and I was just like, for years, I'd think about that pun and just, you know, the stars aligning to make yeah, that happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll cut that out.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then、um, Lucky Numbers, Bewitched, and Julie and Julia. And like, what do you, what do you make of of that run? Like, is it just for you? Is it just about Sleepless in Seattle? Or yeah, I did also watch.、Um, it's it's. I'm I'm quite intrigued as to in terms of her own personal life, what was happening to her、mm. in the nineties because I know that、um, her third marriage was a very successful, happy, happy、yeah. one,、mm. and I actually wonder if that's it. <laughs> Like, <laughs> like, like I mean, it's un- it's unfortunate, but pain does drive great art. Not to say that's the only way, yeah, but yeah. for for a lot of、um, artists and storytellers, that's definitely the case. And、um, when I was looking into her personal life、um, in preparation for this, I kind of thought, huh, yeah, I wonder because the last. The five films you just mentioned are so are pretty eclectic、yeah. and erratic, and I just kind of thought, oh, you were probably quite happy, so you were like, let's just try some different stuff、mm. to, rather than being driven by this pain to explore whatever the void is inside her. 
Well, the way they described her marriage to uh, Nick Pelleggi, mm. Pelleggi, Pelleggi, Pelleggi. Oh. Oh. He's Italian. Yeah, he's Italian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's the writer of, of Goodfellas, uh, which is just like I love that that mm. marriage. The idea of those two yeah. being together, but um, the way they describe it, I wonder if the relationship in Julie and Julia between uh, Julia Charles and her husband, mm. it's such a, a beautiful relationship. I love that relationship. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I wonder if that was really driven. By her, because kind of at the same time, um, she also wrote Hanging Up, which she didn't direct. It was weird. In, in 2000, she directed Lucky Numbers, which she didn't write. Aww. And she wrote Hanging Up, which Diane Keaton directed, about three sisters. And it's really interesting because uh, it's basically a big part of it is uh, Diane Keaton as this successful magazine editor who isn't there for the father's death. And Aww. that's kind of her. And she and Delia had a bit of a, you yeah. know, Delia was kind of saying, yeah, you weren't there for all of it. And so she ended up writing a film sort of, or co-writing a film basically about herself not really being there where she's sort of the villain, not really the villain, but antagonistic yeah. a bit. It's, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of autobiography in there. Everything is copy. Mm. Yeah. I wonder why she didn't direct that. That sounds more her than Lucky Numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder why that is. Cause that's the only film she didn't write. Mm. Watching all of her films, I came up with a bit of a, a theory. Maybe haven't prosecuted it enough to know if it's uh, broadcastable or not, but I'm going to float it and see what you think. There are two aspects to Efron that are put on screen. There's the Meg Ryan and there's the Meryl Streep. Sometimes the Meryl Streep is a Julie Kavner, sometimes the Meg Ryan is an Amy Adams. But mm. basically, one is the fantasy and one is the reality. Meryl was the literal her... And, you know, Meg or sometimes Amy Adams was the fantasy her. And I find it very telling in the fact that her last film, the fantasy version of her was idolising the very real and imperfect Julia Childs, the creating a fantasy of this real woman that didn't exist and that fell apart once she actually got to know her. And, like, to me that reflects the, the lean towards the reality that underpins even her most fantastical films. Like, even something like Michael, which is a supernatural angel comes down. Like, he's this, like, ugly slob who... Mm. Or not, you know, ugly's probably pushing it a bit. Sorry, John. Um, yeah, but he, <laughs> he's just kind of really slobbish, unappealing character. And so there's always a reality to that fantasy. And it's very tempting to read a lot into someone's last work. Yeah. But I think that kind of... I don't know. I feel like that's a really interesting coda to how she wrote these sort of two types of women in her films. Yeah, I have... I, that's never even crossed my mind because I watched um, Julie and Julia... Julia and Julia? No, Ju- Julie, 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 Julie and Julia, and Julia yeah. last night. And I um, it was I just sort of struggled through it a little bit because I sat there watching like, what is this film about? Like, what is it really actually about? Other than that, it was a crazy bestseller at the time. And I was also thinking that Amy Adams character was clearly meant for Meg Ryan Mm. in her heyday and that Meg Ryan would have and that was possibly the missing ingredient to really pull the film together because I I found um, I thought that was like one of the worst Amy Adams performances Mm. I I don't think she got that type of woman but whereas um, she just made her uh, like, bland, bland, a little bit insufferable. Yeah. Where I'm just like, you don't have any problems. Like, what's what's wrong with you? 
Um, Which is maybe why she meshed the two autobiographies together. Like yeah. everyone wanted her to write the Julie story. Yeah. And she's more clearly more interested in the Julia Child story. Yeah. And it's super interesting the way they're meshed together, but you can tell where her interest lies. Yeah, yeah. and you, and she was also trying to you know, given that structurally it's sort of sleepless in Seattle-esque in that it's two people who never meet, but mm. they sh- they, they yeah. needed to have a pool. And, you know, stylistically she was trying to do, like, match cuts and parallel storylines, mm. but, um, like, I don't think it ever really quite gelled in, in the way that it was intended. But having, with this theory in mind, I was just so much more interesting and I wish that was such a good thesis yeah. I'm really impressed it, uh, <laughs> it came to better, together better than I thought it would so pleased with that uh. but I wonder if she like this um, the Meg Ryan-esque character like what part of her life did she is that an aspirational person that she never lived out or maybe maybe the the carefree like even if she's a bit uptight the sort of carefree pixie cut yeah i'm in new york walking around with a scarf yeah yeah maybe i don't know yeah i guess she's um someone who constantly picks at like it's quite unsatisfied the, the meg ryan character and is always searching for like something to be better in source on the side yeah 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 in her in her own life um or we always meet them at a point of realization like actually what i have isn't enough which is quite a modern female condition i think even you know 20 years on from those films Mm. i i have to say i did really enjoy mixed nuts the uh very christmas one oh well actually i'll I'll jump on that because I think, you know, we talk a lot about Shane Black being the Christmas filmmaker. Oh, he sets all yes. Stuff. She sets, like, what, Michael, yeah. you've got mail, like, he yeah. numbers, mixed nuts. She loves Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I mean, Sleepless in Seattle has a Christmas part of it. Absolutely, And he yeah. is, um, you know, it was a big part of yeah. Yeah, him realising his loss. So I, I think she should also be the, uh, yeah. the director <laughs> laureate of Christmas. Yeah. But um, which one was I talking about? Mixed nuts. Oh, no, I, I didn't like Mixed Nuts. I'm mm. sorry, I've actually got them confused. You are right, that is the Christmas one. That one did not work for me at all. I was thinking of My Blue Heaven, which is the other Steve Martin uh, film. Yeah. Um, and it's the one she wrote but didn't direct. And it's a very, very silly film. Mm. And I'm not sure it's particularly good, but I liked it a lot. Because <laughs> Steve Martin plays over-the-top, like, gangster. Like It's just so such weird casting and Rick Moranis is an FBI agent. But for me, like... The whole thing just hinges on Steve Martin saying vegetables. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, you get hung up on this on the weirdest things in films. But um, it's like her, her forte was definitely the love story. But even in comedies that don't quite mm. work, she still she still rings a yeah. lot of comedy out of those moments. Yeah, it's interesting because she uh, that was apparently the film that made her decide that she'll direct her own stuff now. Right. Yeah. Um, and I haven't, I haven't seen it, but um, yeah, I just read, read somewhere that was her tipping point. I'm interested, Corey, as a director. I mean, obviously, I think her strengths really were probably in the writing sphere of things. But as a director, what are the things you like about her, her directorial choices or style? Well, I think in terms of her directing work, her pinnacle is still in Sleep, Sleepless in Seattle in the, like the, the pacing of that film. I just thought was phenomenal and um like in the opening shot when it starts with just the the father son at a gravesite mm. and then it pulls back and you see that 
Oh, it's actually amazing. at a funeral, yeah. and it's the pain and the grief is so present tense. Yeah. And then with um, the city skyline behind them, yeah. and just in that one shot, sort of told you everything you've just missed in their backstory, <laughs> as well. Like that to me is directing. I'm quite curious to see what they would have read on paper, mm. read like on paper. And yeah, and just uh, the, the boldness to have these sequences of him sitting out on his back deck, like watching the sky and like Meg Ryan looking at the sky at the same time. Mm. It goes on for, for, I don't know, three minutes or something. Those sequences would not exist now yeah. in, in any rom-com. I don't think it'd be cut. Well, actually, I don't think this film could be made now. Really? Imagine, well, yeah. imagine pitching a film where your two marquee stars don't meet until the very... <laughs> well, basically don't converse until the very last it's scene. Bas- basically Sleepless in Seattle and Heat. Yeah. They're very similar films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, really allowing the actors to dictate the pace and, like, I think finding the authenticity and character choices is a really big thing Mm -hmm. that she does well rather than doing it because it was written it's just having the confidence to yeah to to know the logic of the dialogue Mm. yeah and I think that's one of the one of the privileges of being able to write what you're directing because that's something that's been with you for a long time Mm. She was uh, brutally honest about everyone around her. She was famous for that. And in that spirit, could I suggest that maybe she was not the greatest at picking songs? Uh, oh, I don't so agree. I don't, I don't think she ever met a music cue that was too obvious. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, she's got a, like, in Julia, Julia, uh, Julie's got a boil a lobster, and so the music choice is Psycho Killer. Oh. In, in Bewitched, Will Ferrell is sad, so everybody hurts. Cues. That's, I, I just wish, like, just, uh, someone else had sort of stepped in and yeah. uh, picked some songs for oh, her. What about yeah. this, is my, yeah, this Is Your Life? I think it was Carly Simon's You Are the Love of My Life. Oh. Yeah. Just over and over and over again. Carly Simon scored a number of her films. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting yeah, was, choice. Yeah, too much. <laughs> Um, yeah, in terms of like patterns and things coming full circle in, in the documentary, everything is copy. Steven Spielberg talks about how much he always wanted to impress Efron and he still remembers the number of times he's made her laugh. Like that was an important thing to him. And he recently made the film, the post, Mm. which is deliberately positioned as a prequel to all the president's men. And it features Efron favorites, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. And the film is dedicated to Efron. Um, I just, I was just thinking about this, and, and I actually didn't l- discover that by looking up Efron and seeing she had a thanks too. I thought, I bet the post is dedicated to Efron, and yeah, I looked it up, right. and sure enough, because it just, yeah, it, you almost could not have not dedicated it to her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's something pleasingly complete about that. I yeah, think. I um had really only just heard about the now cancelled Amazon series. Good Girls Revolt. Yeah. And she's in it, as in the character, yeah. Laura Efron, is in it, because that yeah. covers her um, newsroom time. Yeah. Newsweek. When they were, yeah, the class yeah. action against yeah, Newsweek, yeah. yeah. Which I, well, I mean, it's a, it's a shame it's now cancelled, but I'm sort of keen to check out how she's been portrayed. Yeah, same. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Kari, thank you so much for joining us this month. 
Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thank it was you very a pleasure. Much. Was all ours, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye bye. Psycho killer. And-